9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode. This is David Rothkopf, your host in New York City, joined as always this time of the week by co-host Ryan Goodman, uh, who's also, I think, somewhere in the New York area. How are you doing today, Ryan? Pretty well, David, thanks. Ryan is, of course, the co-editor of Just Security and a professor at NYU Law School. We have a special guest this week. Peter Strzok is the author of Compromised, Counterintelligence, and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. Uh, He is a career uh, FBI agent. Prior to that, uh, served in the U.S. military um, and played a leading role in a variety of major counterintelligence efforts uh, up until the controversy surrounding Donald Trump. His new book, which is out from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, uh, is terrific. I, I read it. Uh, and let me begin, Peter, by congratulating you on a book that is a, is a great read uh, and I think will surprise a lot of people um, uh, in the, 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 the scope of the great sort of yarns that you tell in it, uh, in addition to this story. Uh, you've got the, the background on the real story behind the Americans. <laughs> That, that kind of a case, uh, as well as your own life. And I, I just thought it was great book. So congratulations and welcome. Great. Thank you. And uh, David Ryan, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here with you. So um, we're going to just go back and forth with questions and I'm going to let Ryan kick it off. Uh, so just to start up by also saying, you know, echoing what David said, I had also thought it was just a great book. And, you know, nobody can uh, now think about the historical record without uh, reading your book from uh, beginning to end. So I think it's uh, really important that we have it, um, and congratulations on it. I guess the one thought I had for an opening kind of question is, uh, we're recording this um, podcast 47 days before the November elections, and I therefore thought, you know, maybe this is a good opportunity to tap into your expertise because many listeners are thinking about um, issues that go right uh, at the heart of your expertise in terms of thinking about um, Putin's uh, cost-benefit calculations. Um, We now know from the U.S. intelligence community that he's running active um, measures inside the United States to interfere with our elections one way or another. But one question that I thought to hone in on is the election infrastructure and potential Russian interference there. Um, In your interview with Natasha Bertrand about your book, Um, You referred to um, information that we had in 2016 of the Russians having, you know, quote unquote, techniques and means of attack, end quote, uh, that they did not use, you know, pretty vague terms appropriately, but that they had techniques and means of attack in 2016 that they did not use. And I guess the question is, what do you think is the, you know, cost benefit calculation for Putin going into the 2020 election? So David Scheimer's book, uh, Rigged, he has a quote from John Brennan, who said that the Russians quote, could have done things as far as voter registration rolls. They could have done things as far as tallies, end quote. And James Clapper uh, tells Scheimer that the reason that Putin didn't do certain things in 2016 is because he anticipated Hillary Clinton would win. So here we are 47 days out from the November elections. Joe Biden is ahead in the polls, but nothing's inevitable. 
Um, how do you think about the threat of Russian interference that's aside from the kind of influence campaigns, which, which you can talk about as well, I'd love to talk to you about that too, but concerns about our election infrastructure, even if it's not changing the outcome, just enough to throw chaos uh, or public trust in the outcome of the elections into doubt? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Thanks for the kind words about the book. Uh, you know, I appreciate that. And I think looking at what the Russians can do, there are things that, you know, we saw in 2016 and some of which are coming out. Uh, there wasn't a lot publicly disclosed, but you did have folks, you know, down in Florida in particular, but other places saying, hey, after the fact, you know, DHS or others in the U.S. government came to us and said that, you know, we observed probing or that they actually successfully got into some of these, you know, whether it's the voter database registration, whether it's actual the voting infrastructure and the tallying, or whether it's the targeting of the hardware itself. So I'm a little bit limited. I mean, I was happy that, you know, I had to submit my book through pre-publication review and I was pleased that they let me say that there were things that we were expecting that they didn't use. So even that was, you know, I'm glad to be able to talk about it. But the specific things I can't, you know, because they remain classified, get into detail. But there are some statements that the government has made. And when you look at some of the recent things that Microsoft just came out and talked about some of the behavior they were seeing from the Russians, um, I would say broadly, they're improving their ability to hide their hand. Um, and that's not only whether it's in social media issues, but also presumably looking at or attacking or otherwise um, casting doubt on the efficacy and um, truth or, or validity of that voting infrastructure. So I am worried, uh, you know, their goal is to not at the end of the day, get anybody or anybody else elected. I mean, certainly it's been stated they are trying to denigrate Biden's campaign and by logical extension that's helping Trump. But I think their true goal is they want America consumed uh, with ourselves. They want us worrying about whether or not our vote was accurate. They want us fighting about it. They want us looking at all the divisions that are there. So to the extent they can get there and get into a voter database and muddy up the data or change the data, or even at some point, if there's what everybody expects potentially to be a close election that changes as mail-in votes are tallied, if they can sit there and see just in a small swing district, one story of compromised, you know, voter database, somebody, you know, they're interviewing people outside a polling station at the middle of a swing state uh, county and person after person is saying, well, I couldn't vote because my name wasn't there. Mm. You don't have to attack. I mean, that could be like, you know, 500 people, but just seeing that or putting disinformation out there that's, that's happening is going to fall onto a very, um, you know, a, a, an environment that's ripe for this this the story to explode and of course that's what russia is seeking to figure out you know where's that flashpoint that we can take our gallon of gas and pour it on to best effect and the goal at the end of the day is to have us so worried about what we're doing and what was or wasn't accurate that we're not paying any attention to global affairs that we're you know continue this path of withdrawing from our leadership role around the world whether that's disentangling from nato whether that's moving away from the eu it, it presents a regional opportunity and a strategic opportunity for Russia to advance their own interests. So do they care about being seen or not seen? At the end of the day, I don't know that they do. I think they just wait. It's enough, you know, it's enough to, you know, they can sit there and deny it with, you know, kind of a wink and a nod, but they know that the goal is to get us fighting amongst ourselves and we're already fighting amongst ourselves we're already picking up guns and killing each other so it, it, it's it's that sort of flashpoint sort of environment that i do worry that actual 
hardware voting infrastructure type tampering will be very uh, potentially effective. Well, I think, you know, what you described may someday be looked at as one of the most successful intelligence operations ever undertaken against the United States. And one of the reasons that it is, is that uh, the Russians advertently or inadvertently discovered some real vulnerabilities within our system. One is, uh, uh, if you work uh, closely with a president who's willing to um, encourage you and reward you and uh, 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 do things that might be um, subject of investigation or even prosecution to anyone else, you can get away with it. Um, you, you know, you can get away with it in our system, whether it's because of the OLC memo or even in your own book, you say, you know, as you guys began this investigation and started drilling down, you, you kind of leaned backwards away from the prosecution or the targeting of Trump at the center of all of this um, because of the complications of pursuing a president. And Mueller did the same thing where he, you know, there were certain areas where you might have pushed harder had it not been a president, whether it's to, to demand testimony from somebody or, 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 or to pursue prosecution. Where we, where we leaned away from it. And then that in turn, not to complicate this too much, is co compounded by a Republican party that says, we'll do what's ever in our political interest in the Senate uh, and, and we'll, we'll let the president do that. And so not only have the Russians, you know, had, had carte blanche to do what they're doing, they've had carte blanche to do it for four years and we've actually reduced the amount of spending that we spend on this. And as a, as a career counterintelligence guy, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the counterintelligence dimension of this and whether it's been investigated enough. As a career counterintelligence guy, wouldn't you say it's, it's, it's fair to say that they discovered a big vulnerability in our system and are taking advantage of it? Absolutely. I think so. I mean, I think this, uh, you know, when we look back on it, certainly from a counterintelligence perspective, it's one of the, to understand it from a CIA investigative sort of perspective, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest counterintelligence investigations that the Bureau ever faced. Bigger, in my opinion, than probably the theft of the atomic bomb. Not if I'm a Brit, probably not from the Cambridge Five perspective, but that's that was an American. So, I mean, again, I think when you look at it, it is a sort of unprecedented success for the Russians, unprecedented failure for the United States. And so getting to the bottom of that, you know, I, I, my concern is we haven't done that, that clearly that wasn't something that Mueller did. And I have some concern that, um, you know, nobody in the FBI kind of took on this very uh, complete sort of effort along the lines of what uh, the Senate Intel Committee did with their look uh, to our detriment, because again, understanding what the Russians did and what they still might do uh, is critically important that if you don't understand that, if you don't understand how it was coordinated, whether it was centralized or not, how Russia went about planning it and executing it, you're not going to be able to protect it effectively. So it is a gap. I don't know that they saw it so much as stumbled into it, but there was this kind of weird confluence of in 2016, certainly you know, the administration made an attempt in the fall to go to the Hill and try and have some sort of bipartisan statement about what the Russians were doing and McConnell refused and so nothing was ever said. But what it also did, I think there was such a, a chilling impact or a sense in the administration, this is above the FBI, but that, you know, A, 
Clinton was the favorite to win. And I think that belief that she was going to win the election coupled with not wanting to be seen if they made some sort of statement about Russian interference, that that would be viewed as a partisan attempt to help Clinton. You know, if they came out and said, look, the Russians are interfering and we think they're helping Trump, you know, that would be seen uh, as harmful in a way that she didn't need that help because she was fine. And of course, at the same time, and this goes to your other point, Trump is sitting there saying exactly what the, the Russian line would be. You know, they're out to get me. This vote is rigged. This is all a setup. Obama's trying to undermine me. This is all a Russian hoax. And so he's saying exactly the same things that the administration is worried that he would say. But fast forward to today, there's no such, you know, com reluctance whatsoever to accept that Russian help. I mean, you had Director Ray today in Congress saying, Russia is involving themselves in our election and they're doing that to denigrate Biden you know, and, you know, and undermine faith in our election. She got the director of the FBI saying right now, right now, September 2020, the Russians are trying to help Trump or trying to hurt Biden. And you can't say they're going to hurt Biden without necessarily saying they're trying to help Trump. So where's the administration response to that? How is that possibly okay? How can anybody listen to the director? And, and that mirrors the comments that the the direct the DNI's uh, director of NCSC, the the head of the counterintelligence component of the DNI, you know, a few weeks ago sat up there. And I mean, he talked about Russia and China and Iran. But when he talked about Russia, he said Russia is doing this to hurt Biden and the kind of anti-Russian forces. How can any American? <laughs> this isn't a partisan issue. How can you look and you say the administration in power is saying there's a hostile foreign nation? right now, trying to help me get reelected and not have some sort of response to, to, to put any sort of deterrent on that activity. It, it, it's mind boggling to me. And yet, you know, you get 60% of the population says, oh God, this is, you know, parade of horribles and latest example and 35, 40% who don't believe it and say it's all, it's still a hoax. It's not. The Trump administration said it's going on. It's from their mouths. And I, I just don't understand how that cannot be just a five alarm fire to anybody who's watching that. Ryan, can I ask a, just a little quick follow up to that? Mm -hmm. um, last night, the Attorney General of the United States said <laughs> the FBI reports to me. They're my FBI. Uh, and, uh, you know, Director uh, uh, Ray said no, they report to the American people today. But I'm just wondering, as a career FBI agent, how do you react to the Attorney General saying that? Well, it's an amazingly megalomaniacal sort of statement. I mean, I think technically by law, sure, yes, we report to him, but it's a staggering statement. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad the director did that, I, you know, and I'm appreciative that he did that and I admire his strength in saying that. But at the end of the day, I, when I look at that, and this is the same conversation where, you know, the attorney general is comparing his, his prosecutors to a bunch of Montessori school students that you don't let them run and set the priorities that somehow that, you know, any discontent or disagreement must be from a partisan political nature. And he spends a lot of time there talking about like, you know, in a very philosophical way about how power derives legitimacy and you have to be an elected official and that, you know, he's accountable as an appointed official and the president is because he's elected and these low level functionaries, their power doesn't, doesn't have that same imprimatur of the, you know, the political election of somebody. But in my mind, he's conflating, you know, power, power has both the, the authority for it, but it also has a legitimacy component to it. And if you, he's sitting there, he's not looking at the legitimacy. He's not looking at the traditions of the rule of law. He's not looking at the fact that, you know, everybody's oath of office 
as Director Ray said, is to the nation and the Constitution. The words of Attorney General don't appear in anybody's oath of office. And so when I sit there and I watch, you know, Durham's deputy who resigned, when I look at the four prosecutors who resigned from the Roger Stone prosecution, when I look at the lead prosecutor who, who quit the Flynn prosecution, they weren't doing that because of a political agenda. They were look, doing that because as officers of the court, they saw this delegitimization of what's going on by the Department of Justice that it's no longer being applied blindly. That's why they resigned. It wasn't some agenda that in their Montessori school environment, they thought that they knew better than the attorney general. They were looking at this and say, I can't abide this destruction of the historical independence and, and impartiality of the Department of Justice and the way the law is applied in this country. And this is the only and most powerful thing I can do to protest. And what that means for Barr, you know, he's all about power, but if you have the power without legitimacy, then that's kind of the bedrock of authoritarianism. So I, I just, when he starts talking and going off on this deep thought about what power means and whether or not power is legitimate, if you don't at the same time address the legitimacy of that power, it's really concerning and that's really antithetical, you know, at least to mine and most people's understanding of the democratic exercise of power. Thanks. Ryan. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of drill down into the other dimension of, you know, what you, somebody's talked about before, understanding better the Russian methods of interfering in our political process. And also talk about um, some of the ongoing issues that we think about a lot these days with respect to the methods of Russian disinformation. And in particular, I want to focus in on use of Ukrainian operatives who are acting as conduits uh, for Russian disinformation, because I think that could help listeners understand that better to hear it from you based on your expertise. And in your book, you even write, you say this in a couple different ways, but one time you say, quote, the Russian and Ukraine investigations are part of the same story, end quote. Um, and I think there's another part where you talk about them being as both part of the arc of corruption, um, two different points on the arc. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to turn to the, what we've also talked about a little bit here, the Senator Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley's investigation on the Ukraine, including support for the, what you refer to as well in the book, and I agree with you, the debunked theory of Ukraine interference in the 2016 election. And Senator Johnson is now saying, you know, these, he's not taking information directly from uh, Ukrainian operatives, or in particular this man, uh, uh, Andrei Derkash, who's been identified by the Treasury Department as an intelligence asset for Russia. But in terms of the methods that they use, um, what I wanted to, ask you about is the ways in which these operatives appear to launder their information through the media. And then uh, Ron Johnson refers to the media reports uh, that are dependent upon them. So, you know, to contrast with Senator Johnson, Senator Wyden is on the Senate Intelligence Committee yesterday made a significant statement before the floor of the Senate. He said, quote, to spread this, this information, Russia enlists the help of characters like Andrei Derkash and Andrei Teloshenko, end quote. And he also referred to Teloshenko as being, quote, the star witness in the Johnson Grassley investigation, end quote. And what I see is like a letter from Grassley and Johnson, September 2019 to Bill Barr, refers to, they say in the middle of the letter, they refer to Teloshenko multiple times, but it's not what he told them directly, it's what he told the news media. But they say, uh, quote, another Ukrainian embassy official, Andrei Teloshenko, told Politico officials were, were coordinating an investigation with the Hillary team on Paul Manafort, end quote. So we have information in the public domain about these 
actors, the Treasury Department's certification, for example, um, another statement that came out of uh, ODNI. The New York Times and Politico have told us that the FBI has warned members of Congress about the methods of these operatives, that they have warned that Teloshenko himself is a conduit, uh, or they're concerned that he's a conduit for Russian disinformation. And then the last data point, before kind of turning it to you to talk about these methods, is the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee report, which came out just a few weeks before your book was published. So it was after you'd written it and sent it, I'm sure, to the publisher, identifies um, Teloshenko, uh, uh, Kalimnik as well, for having worked with the media and trying to spread these the hoax, the debunked theory of Ukraine interference. And here we have it being reproduced by some members of Congress, not all. And, that, and once again, I think it's really important to identify the bipartisan nature of this. So the former chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Richard Burr, has apparently warned um, Senator Johnson about this as being a conduit for Russian disinformation. The current chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Marco Rubio, publicly made a statement about it. And even uh, Lindsey Graham has apparently said, he's backed off and said, don't trust things that are coming out of Ukraine uh, in, in reference to the other Senate investigation. So it's not a Republican versus Democratic issue, but just how you think about that ongoing method and threat of Russian disinformation. Yeah, well, I, I love the term or ID you used about laundering information. I think that's exactly what's going on. And that's something that's very old that the Russians and the Soviets before them have done for time immemorial, that this idea of taking information and finding a way to hide its origin and inserting it. You know, they, they were putting information out that, you know, Scoop Jackson was a closet homosexual to try and discredit him. They were planning fake um, uh, State Department documents into uh, major U.S. newspapers to limit Jimmy Carter's policy options in Central America, I think, with Rodel Salvador. But that, that idea of hiding the hand of disinformation through inserting documents is old and they've done that forever and they do it very, very, very well. And so it's not surprising to me to see it. What is surprising to me is that this continued reliance on it, even after direct warnings, and not only that, but by, you know, the, the, the rules are upside down. You know, these are, I'm old enough to remember, you know, Republicans who used to be staunchly anti-communist, strong national defense, you know, using any sort of disinformation would have been anathema to anything they're doing. And so now you look and it's, you're absolutely right. I mean, so you get Ron Johnson, who, by the way, goes and spends the 4th of July in Moscow in 2018, and he comes back and he begins, you know, feeding all uh, off of all of this information that the U.S. government, the executive branch actually comes to him and says with Teloshenko, I think, I, I remember reading specifically about him. We think this is Russian disinformation and you ought not to call him as a witness and that's problematic and he backs off. And with regard to Durkacz, you're right. It wasn't only that he was identified in this treasury filing as a Russian agent, but an active Russian agent for 10 years, an active Russian agent. And this is, you know, is there no patriotic line anymore for some of these folks? I mean, at what point if you're Ron Johnson, when you're looking at the Wisconsin voters in the eye and telling them, I was warned by the Trump administration's intelligence community that all of the material that I'm seeking to gather for about Biden was Russian disinformation. But that's okay, because I want to get to the bottom of something which apparently may not exist or is, you know, is a falsehood made up by Russia. And I think, you know, for the fact that that's happening, and as he said, you know, you look at the media, 
you know, the same folks like, you know, Rudy Giuliani was running around with these same individuals, the exact same individuals, along with, you know, some OAN reporter who's standing in the back of all these damn White House press conferences without a mask because the White House Press Association won't let her sit up front with the adults. You know, th th there is this almost like, hopefully not winning, in the best case, hopefully a bunch of useful idiots who are more than happy to dive into this narrative and try through the veneer of media to try and make it look to legitimize it. And you're exactly right. I mean, that is laundering, that is laundering information to create, and then you see it seep in, and then that comes in, and then that gets picked up by a more mainstream conservative outlet. And then all of a sudden it's in the dialogue is something that is fact, but you can trace back this sort of, you know, the, the introduction and the evolution of what started as Russian disinformation. And some of that, you can just follow it into a, a, a talking point, you know, on, on Fox that night. So let me pick up on that a little bit and go back into the story of 2016. And I realize you have some constraints on what you can talk about and what you can't talk about. One of the things you, you get into in the book is that, you know, Trump has had ties with Russia since 1987. Um, of, of varying kinds. Uh, and so one wonders, you know, here's this guy who's got some ties and he's running and he's carrying on communications about a Trump Tower and so forth. Are, the, are, are You know, in your view, is Russian intelligence going, oh, well, this is a, an opportunity? Or is there a moment in this story where the plot thickens? And, and in particular, I think of the end of March 2016, when Paul Manafort takes over the Trump campaign. And he's got this guy, Kalimnik, who the Senate Intelligence Report identifies as a, a, associated with Russian intelligence, working with him. Now, at this point, the Russians must think, holy mackerel, you know, this is the chairman of a presidential campaign of a guy who is one of two people who can become the president of the United States. And he like owes our guy money and he's got a Russian intelligence guy. You know, is this like the moment the penny drops and, you know, the plot thickens? Or do you think this is, this is something that was, you know, baked in the cake prior to that? I, I think it happened earlier. I think they certainly had that realization and that, you know, happiness probably but you know the counterintelligence and intelligence is a long game and i'm sure that you know on the russian side of things i would be shocked if the very beginnings of sort of trump's ruminations about running for office in the presidency if that wasn't something that um, picked their interest and that they started paying attention to what's interesting about trump is his his business dealings in many ways you know represent like this perfect overlay with this the, the kind of devolution of russian state power and how that's gotten muddy. You know, back in the days of the Soviet Union, you'd have the Politburo and the Central Committee and all the organs of state power, whether that was the intelligence services or the Ministry of Defense or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and they each carried out Russian foreign policy. And then, you know, it's become much more diffuse, you know, between the rise of the oligarchs, you know, the company kind of connections to organized crime. You have work, you know, and you saw it in 2016, you know, the Internet Research Agency and his connections to Prigozhin, who has no, you know, he's not part of the intelligence apparatus of the Russian state, but you have all these people, people in between Putin, the government of Russia, 
oligarchs, organized crime who are tied into oligarchs, and intelligence officers who are kind of floating back and forth between all these really muddy centers of power. Now, when you overlay Trump on that in his history, I mean, if you believe what his kids have said about the money flowing into the Trump financial empire, and particularly the real estate business, you know, they're getting money from this sort of shady, you know, world. There are allegations that, you know, there's there's money being laundered through the, you know, Trump properties, that there's money being laundered through his casino in Atlantic City, that there may be, you know, what Cohen recently said that his assumption that this, you know, property down in Florida that, you know, sold for double value that he assumed that was a $10 million payment from Vladimir Putin. But then you get this like hand into glove, perfect alignment, where this new sort of structure of Russian exercise of state power overlays perfectly onto kind of the way the Trump business empire is playing and dealing in all these different environments. And that's what makes the, in my mind, the, 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 the kind of compromise of him through all these different avenues, much more profound than a, you know, a traditional candidate. Marco Rubio and John Kasich and, you know, Joe Biden don't have the same sort of routine, historical, decades-long interaction with all these different sort of shady Russian power centers the way that Trump does. And in fact, Trump is unique in the way that he has this sort of exposure and vulnerability. So again, as I look at it as a counterintelligence guy, I, you know, A, I've never seen anything like it before in my life. I don't, as a student, you know, I've worked six administrations doing CI and going back and looking at, you know, as a student of history, there just isn't any other administration who's represented this both broad and really complex set of interaction and vulnerabilities to a, to a hostile foreign nation. Interesting. Brian. Just to ask the, I have a very short question in some sense, to ask the converse of the question about Paul Manafort. Um, so the Senate Intelligence Committee report, the bipartisan report, refers to him as being a quote-unquote grave counterintelligence threat, <laughs> which one would think would take the air out of the idea that there was something suspicious about the launching of these investigations of particular Trump campaign associates that the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee report chaired by a Republican senator um, has that in it. Um, but is just to, the one question I really don't know the answer to the question is, at the time though, that, that's what they said last month um, in the issuing on the report where they have the wealth of much more information that came about including what Mueller was able to find. But at the time, how does that figure in with Crossfire Hurricane when you all are thinking about Manafort? Um, at that point, was he so easily identifiable as a great grave crown intelligence and threat, or it was more about, as you talk about a bit in the book, like we understand what his relationships were with the Russian-linked Ukrainian parties. Um, and there are other relationships that he's had with oligarchs linked directly to Putin. So at the time of the, so I, in some ways I would think to myself, like how much should people hang on what's in that Senate Intelligence Report saying that? Or is it, there's a, there are plenty of good arguments and understanding of what was the predicate for the, the crossfire hurricane. You don't need that. And that's a little bit of a red herring uh, because it's the wealth of information that they've gotten over months since crossfire hurricane actually uh, got started. 
I think you absolutely have to look at the Senate Intel report. I mean, A, because it puts the lie to everything that's been coming out of the Attorney General's mouth, that this was not merited, that there was a very slim read on which to base all of this. And it was, you know, an unprecedented spying of a, a presidential campaign. I mean, clearly, stop. There are 960, however many pages, conclusively demonstrating the opposite, by the way, coming out of a Republican-led Senate committee. So, so stop that line of argument. Just eliminate it, it is unsustainable anymore. Well, I think when you go back to 2016, I mean, again, keep in mind, investigations are, you know, Jim Baker, the former general counsel of the FBI, he, he said this beautifully, investigations are a question. They are asking a question. What happened? There is some information and an investigation is asking that question to go out and find what did or didn't occur. A lot of CI stuff will never end up either, you know, certainly not proving a crime occurred, but it may not even demonstrate conclusively that there was some sort of foreign intelligence involvement or not. But nevertheless, what the FBI does day in and day out from a counterintelligence perspective is asking those questions. And it's always about what are the Russians doing? What are the Chinese doing? What is any global threat doing to attack the national security of the United States? So when we get that initial information from the friendly foreign government, that you know, Papadopoulos had told one of their representatives that um, Russia had made an offer of assistance to somebody in the Trump campaign to release information that would be damaging to Obama and Clinton. That was a very discreet question. You know, did that happen? What was actually said? And then certainly, was that ever acted on? Because this is something, this isn't just Russia interfering, this is Russia actively, allegedly trying to coordinate that interference, which is something they've never done before with the presidential campaign. And so we started by that saying, okay, who would be the likely person to have received that? We didn't know at the time all these things that came out later. And, you know, I've found out after, after the fact, when you look at kind of lining up all these chronologies, like my partner and I are literally walking away from the interview of one of the friendly foreign government reps at the same moment, you know, we're overseas in Europe. And at the same time, Manafort and I think Gates went with them. They're going to meet with Klemnik to give them this detailed polling data. Well, we had no idea that was going on. None. But, you know, we're both walking on the street with 3,500 miles apart with, with the seeds of all this activity that's unfolding. So you can't, we, we didn't know it, but at the same time, you can't take that out of the equation because the reason we look, the reason we do counterintelligence investigations is to get to an understanding of what occurred. And had we not investigated, had the special counsel not been uh, appointed, had we not prosecuted Manafort and get, gotten all these, you know, uh, proffer sessions or, or however that information came out, we wouldn't have known it in the way we do now. And so now we're able to sit there and say, A, he was sharing polling data. B, it was really, really detailed polling data. And then C, if you believe the Senate report, it wasn't only somebody affiliated with Russian intelligence, but was, you know, I think they term him uh, an intelligence officer. Now, I don't know why they're saying that. I haven't seen the data to support or refute that. But you, you have to look at all of that because the, the, the end result is, points to the whole reason you do counterintelligence work. And you don't get to that factual understanding without first doing that investigation to get there. Uh, in Bob Woodward's book, he uh, uh, quotes uh, Dan Coates as, as saying that he felt that and wondering whether Putin had something on Trump, you know, and, and, and it says something about the time we live in that Trump's handpicked former top intelligence officer could speculate about this. And it's the number 37 news story of the week, right? You know, because, you know, Russia's, you know, pretty high up on the list of potential U.S. Adver adversaries, first or second. 
And, uh, and this has never happened in American history. Trump's the only person who's ever been impeached on national security grounds in, 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 in American history. What do, you, what do you think, what's your reaction to Coates even floating that? I'm not surprised. I mean, it's horrific, but it's a horror that, you know, I think anybody in the counterintelligence field who's looked at anything having to do with Trump is well aware of. And again, this is, you're right. His hand-picked his hand director of national intelligence, who, by the way, was a Republican senator from Indiana for like 16 years. So this is not a partisan statement. And then you add in all these other people there that folks who look at him and, you know, John Bolton and everybody else sitting there concerned about his counterintelligence, not only vulnerabilities, but thinking that he, they've got something on him. And I can tell you as a, as a CI professional, there's nobody who hasn't worked this for any amount of time who wouldn't look at it and have the same concern. And so it's that it's, it's, I think a function of the world we're living in that our ability to be outraged you know, you, you look down and you can't tell whether you've gotten a paper cut or cut off your finger because there's so much outrage that, you know, it's the, the sense of proportionality is <laughs> dulled. But it's, a, I mean, it's bad. It's horrible. It's outrageous. It is a once in a lifetime, hopefully, once in a history sort of event. Now, you know, I pray we never have another president who demonstrates a tenth of the counterintelligence vulnerabilities that Donald Trump does. It's, and, and so trying to communicate that to a non-intelligence person to sit there and say, oh, my God, no, it's truly, you know, it's bad and it's exponentially worse than you can even imagine. That, you know, it's like, you know, you don't feel well and, you know, the doctor comes out and says, well, you're sick. And you're like, oh, I've been feeling sick. And they're like, no, 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 you, do, you don't understand that, you know, we've done the x-rays and you've got, you know, something horrible coursing throughout your body. It's, it's trying to convey that this isn't hyperbole. And it's not partisan hyperbole. You, you've got this from Democrats, you've got it from Republicans, you've got it from intelligence experts, you've got it from you know, former senators, all saying the same thing. And I, yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't know why that's you know, article number 32, you know, on page A16. It, it, I can't fathom how we've gotten to this place where that's the reality. But again, I, you know, if, if part of you and your listeners, you know, we're talking about in a very you know, you're, you're journalists of a sort and you're detached and I'm a trained agent and I'm detached and we're kind of talking about it clinically. But if there isn't part of you inside that doesn't want to kind of step back and scream, you're thinking about it the wrong way because it's really that significant. And, you know, again, how you, how you impress or how you break through sort of this avalanche of outrageousness that just has been part of the last four years. I don't know how you do it, but God, from my perspective and from my expertise, and that's what I'm trying to do about this issue. Right. Um, so I want to tie in two kind of disparate items. So one thing that I thought was really um, interesting in your book, and it's new, is your reflections on the um, Inspector General for the Department of Justice, and the ways in which you describe, you know, from your perspective, that he didn't play it um, straight down the middle, but caved at a certain point with respect to your particular case and, and other ways as well, not even just particular to you, to political pressure, to call it not like you saw it, balls and strikes, but rather call certain things or soften certain things or be a little bit more um, expansive in his interpretation of things to give into political pressure coming from the right or coming from the White House. And it made me think about another dimension of all of this, which is what happened to the Inspector General report 
on the FBI's New York field office and leaks in the 2016 election. And in, I think it's, I think it's the same December 2019 Senate hearing where Senator Leahy asks him about that. And he in some sense confirms that it's an investigation under his office because he says it's ongoing. Um, and that implicates Rudy Giuliani having, uh, apparently having information that he shouldn't have had that seemed as though it was coming out of that office. And it's, you know, it's so funny that we've missed this, or not we, but so much of the mainstream media misses this because it's about, was there bias against Trump? In some ways it's actually, no, there might've actually been bias against Hillary Clinton um, and a particular concern coming out of that office, but it's now about to be four years and the inspector general doesn't have a report or anything to say about the ongoing investigation is just something surprising to me. And then reading your book made me think about it, you know, a little bit differently, um, more informed in a certain sense about that question. So just, just to kind of tee that up to you to speak about either what's in your book so you can help listeners understand your perspective on that or specifically about these other issues that I'm identifying. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate the question. I mean, I think with regard to the leaks out in New York, I, I too am troubled and curious why that report hasn't come out. I get it may be impossible to get to the bottom of just for a variety of factors, records, the policy which did or didn't exist with regard to the media. But if you're not going to be able to end it, well, then just say as much and, and put out the report and close it, uh, just acknowledging those difficulties. I am, you know, I'm troubled by that. And also, you know, Devin Nunez made some comment about they had a whistleblower come about the, the Wiener laptop sometime in September, October, that, you know, well, there's nothing to blow the whistle about. We had just found that damn laptop New York had. So there, there, there isn't whistleblowing there. That's merely somebody, if it's true, disclosing partisan information to a partisan figure within Congress. And so certainly, you know, I've always said I never saw evidence of things being done for a political purpose within the FBI for either side. But having said that, if you ask me, what is, have you ever seen any time that politics or preference of a candidate one way or the other played a role in the FBI's decision making? The one time I can identify is, and Director Comey's talked about this, the concern that if he did not make the announcement about reopening the case, that there are people in New York that he feared would leak it anyway, and that would be a hundred times worse. And he was so concerned about it that he spoke about it with the attorney general, Loretta Lynch, and that she remembered that. So here you've got the one thing that you can identify, the Bureau's decision-making being made based on a sort of partisan concern. It's a partisan concern that there are elements that would leak information about Hillary Clinton that would be damaging to her. So again, that, that entire thing that you can put your finger on is not to hurt Trump, it's to hurt Clinton. And as to his, you know, look, I've got, and I write about him in the book, I, I am frustrated that at the end of the day, what frustrates me about what the inspector general did, he had two investigations with more than 15 attorneys and investigators who went through every single thing I ever wrote, whether it was an instant message, a text message, an email, a written document, my notes. They interviewed scores of people. They went back and interviewed my Quantico classmate, for God's sake. And they asked all of them and looked at all this evidence and said, did you ever see anything where Pete's behavior demonstrated any sort of improper basis and looked at all my investigative decisions? And not only did they not find anything, they found in Clinton that I was like one of the most aggressive people trying to investigate her and was fighting DOJ to advance the case. And so when you see that, at some point, you know, they say, well, the, the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. Well, bullshit. If you've gone through three years with more than a dozen people literally turning my life upside down and you find not one, not one angry person, not one memory of saying, well, Pete did have this odd, universally zero, 
Well, you're at the point where the absence of evidence is in fact evidence of an absence. And then when you know that, when you can't do it to yet be, still be so irresponsible to start throwing around these ideas that, well, we can't eliminate the possibility that somewhere in your mind, there's this implicit bias that played a role in your How do you defend against that? How is that responsible behavior, particularly in this political environment where people are gonna seize on that and just turn it up to 11? That's not fair, that's not just, that's not right. And you're doing it, in my opinion, out of a certain political cowardice because you understand that your authorities and your budget are coming directly from the committee that you're answering to. And so I, I have a real hard time squaring that behavior. And you know, clearly I'm probably still a little bit angrier than I should be about it. But I just, I, I don't, I can't at the end of the day reconcile everything that they did and the utter lack of any evidence and not have that at least be enough to simply say, we didn't see it. If it existed, we would have found it. And that's all I'm gonna say. But then to kind of continue sitting there saying, well, you know, we can't eliminate it either. Come on, do the right thing. I, so, and because there's no way to defend against that. And if you don't have the ability to make the case, then don't say that because that's not right. Well, doing the right thing doesn't seem to be their strong point right now, uh, at least at the highest levels in DOJ. Uh, I, you know, people who are listening to this podcast now as we come to the end of it might wonder, well, why didn't we bring up, you know, the controversy, um, uh, you know, regarding relationships and the texts and so forth earlier? Um, and Ryan and I haven't actually talked about this, but neither of us brought it up at the, at, at, at the outset. You address it in the book. You address it directly. Um, uh, but, you know, we're try to be more substantive here and we try to focus on issues like counterintelligence and to me what is the striking fact which is parallel to what you were just talking about is despite the fact that the president of the united states launched a war against you personally despite the fact that the entire republican establishment picked up on that i can see no evidence of any major substantive conclusion that you reached or effort that you undertook um, have having been compromised or or undermined by their efforts. Am I wrong? Is there something that they discovered where your bias produced um, uh, something that subsequently proved to be unfactual? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I, I, I think that all the things, and that's what's so confounding about this, all the things that they found, whether it was, you know, what I was just talking about being very aggressive on the Clinton investigation to the fact of what we didn't, you know, none of us in the fall of 2016, nobody knew about the cases we had on Manafort and Flynn on Puppet Office on Page. Had anybody made that public? Had I made that public? A, that would have been a great way if there was some coup being plotted against Donald Trump, that would have been a great way to execute it. Right? I mean, that would have been really damaging, but none of us did it. So the things that they found not only or don't demonstrate any sort of act based on improper considerations, all the things that you can actually point to on the record, particularly in the 2016 timeframe, the stuff that we did, that I did and the FBI did time and time again, tended to hurt former Secretary Clinton and tended to help then candidate Trump. So, you know, the, the narrative, the, the factual background to that narrative is, is kind of the opposite of a lot of the way that it's being spun. Well, I think your book helps set that right. I think the fact that you've been out there and you've been doing a lot of interviews helps set that right. I think you're an important voice simply because you've been so immersed in this and 
from my perspective, uh, at least, and I, I think I can speak for Ryan in this, the Russia case um, in which you describe in the book Trump's actions as highly suspicious, highly consistent, and highly advantageous to America's historic adversary is the biggest story of our time. And day in and day out, there is an effort by people to push it aside, to minimize it, or to ensure that there are no consequences for actions that have clearly been damaging to the United States. And so that's why it's so important to have your book on the public record. It's why it's so important to have you out there. It's why we're so grateful that you would take the time to join us. Um, and um, we wish you luck with the book, but I, as you heard from both Ryan and I, I don't know that you'll need it because <laughs> it's excellent. Um, and it's the kind of book that people you know, sh should wanna read. And once they start reading it, they'll be glad they did. So we encourage people to go and get compromised counterintelligence and the threat of Donald J. Trump. Uh, and we thank you, Peter, for joining us. And we thank everybody out there for joining us. And if you want to hear what else we've got coming up, we've got a special one-on-one -on -one tomorrow with Mike Schmidt about his book of the New York Times. Um, go to the dsrnetwork.com and uh, uh, see what's scheduled. And if you feel so inclined, uh, sign up and become a member. In the meantime, thanks, everybody, and uh, stay healthy.